Okay, buckle up. This episode is really special. It's a long one, but it's worth it. The word legend gets bandied around so much these days, but we have got a bona fide legend on the pod this episode. If you have heard of one UK club, it is probably the Hacienda, an iconic venue in Manchester. And we are welcoming one of its residents onto this episode. This is a really inspirational and a really holistic chat And probably there's a lot of stuff in here that you have never heard on a DJ podcast before. Welcome to Dances for Buildings, the podcast where we hear the best bits, worst bits and weirdest bits of DJ life. And just so you know, this episode does contain some strong language. I'm Emily Dust. I'm a DJ, curator and broadcaster. And I love talking to people about DJing. I love talking to them about the places they've been and the weird people they've met. So this is a podcast where we talk about that on the record about travel but through the lens of club culture and it's about the art of DJing itself. The thought process is it's like quadratic equations and fractals going like digital 1010 you're counting you know your beat matching in fours eight sixteens thirty twos and then above that you've got the if not that then this quadratic equation where I'm playing this record now this might match it, but that would twist it and this will keep it steady and that will take it off to a completely other place. So you've got three, four different ways it could go and you're watching the crowd to see what am I going to give them? DJ Paulette has been DJing for over 30 years. She's from Manchester, but she's lived in London, Paris and Ibiza. She made a name for herself at the legendary Hacienda Club in the 90s where she was a resident at an iconic queer night called Flesh. She's been a working DJ ever since. She's had a bit of a renaissance in her DJ career since lockdown and beyond. She's recently played back-to-back with the Blessed Madonna at Homo Block and she is a huge supporter of women and an especially big advocate for black women. And she talks really beautiful about the intergenerational relationships she's forged with some newer DJs coming through, like Jaguar, Jam Supernova and Erica McCoy, who produces this podcast. Paulette just published a book called Welcome to the Club, which is an amazing manual of advice and brilliant stories. And she was awarded DJ Mag's Lifetime Achievement Award as part of their Top 100. She did an amazing mix to celebrate that, recorded at Manchester's Albert Hall, which is just absolute joy behind the decks. So here she is, DJ Paulette. DJ Paulette, it is so nice to have you on the podcast. Hi. I um, You're like the first person I've interviewed for this series who I haven't physically met, but I feel like I know you because your book is amazing and it's so honest and oh, I haven't stopped like good. going on about how great it is because I started, I started marking pages to make notes and literally like every other page is turned over there's so much there's just so much goodness in it there's so much wisdom in it and like it's just amazing so firstly I just want to say congratulations thank you I'm just really happy to hear that because it's a labor of love yeah no uncertain terms I've written every word of it it's come from the heart and soul all the experiences are real 
it's raw, it, it's no holds barred as well. I talk about the ups and the downs of it. It's It's got a little bit of rock and roll in it, but it's more about the real nuts and bolts life. Yeah, I love it because I, I remember reading another book, which was uh like about a completely different genre of music. And I remember somebody summed it up to me. They were like, yeah, it's okay. It's interesting, but it's a bit like I told Gary and then Gary told Dave and like it's all name dropping. And your book, there obviously yeah. are huge names in it, like some of the people you've worked with, like Ronnie Size and Giles Peterson yeah. and some of the clubs you've played, but it's not a sort of like, look at me, I've worked with these people. And you say at the very beginning, you said, oh, but I didn't know if I should write this because there are no access all area names. There are no AAA names. But actually, I think by default, because of that, like, even though you have obviously met loads of AAA names, like your account is so much more relatable. I wanted the real life of it. Yeah. And as much as I can be in a green room, there's more to DJing, there's more to traveling around the world, there's more to having to sustain a life doing this than this superficial. And I, I you know, that there's room for everything. There's room for every book, you know, for sure. I'm not I'm not doing anybody down. If you want to write a rock and roll book, write a rock and roll book. But what concerned me more was legacy. It's like, you know, I really wanted to inspire people either to do this job and to do this job better than I did it and faster than I've done it. So I know where all the bear traps are. Not all of them, but I know where a fair few of them are. And I also wanted to... You know, one of the questions that people ask me is, why is it taking you so long? You know, if you're that great, why is it taking you so long? So I wanted to explain that as well and show it for what it was. It's not, you know, sometimes it's not your fault. There are exterior forces that either slow you down, um, you know, pressure you to do other things, do, do things in a way that aren't necessarily conducive to your success. So I wanted to point those things out, and I but I didn't want to write a handbook or a how-to. I didn't want to make a how-to-DJ book because I think that's definitely dull. But I wanted to show people that there is a way of doing things that could maybe be quicker and there's a way that you can do things where you can really shoot yourself in the foot. You make it sound so simple. <laughs> and it's actually <laughs> like, you know, but I well, love that because like, that's exactly what the podcast is about. You know, it isn't all just about the hour that you're on stage. It's about like everything else around no, it's it. Not. Um, so, But you made your name really at the Hacienda. That was your first big residency. Yeah. And, um, you know, the Hacienda is like probably the most famous club in British clubbing history i don't think i'd have dj'd if i'd have gone and knocked on the door to the hacienda cold because mm. they wouldn't have taken me it's a boys club mm. but i had the chance to dj at this brand new gay night that was starting it'd been created by paul cons and lucy sher bit ginger productions 
They were calling it Flesh. They had the flyers and I was picked to host the second room. And it changed my life. <laughs> it absolutely changed my life. Once you were in, when you think about those days, like, because obviously at the time, I presume didn't know you were DJing in what was going to become one of the most legendary clubs in the world. What were your memories of it like in the present tense, if you like? So there's the run up to it and thinking, what am I going to wear? What am I going to play? And the outfits were, for me, because we were downstairs in the basement and there was no air conditioning and it was packed. Um, heaving sweaty bodies on the stairs, on the mezzanine, dancing behind me on the chairs behind the corner where the decks were set up, my records, because I was playing vinyl then, so my records were almost invariably sent skidding across this wet concrete floor at least three times a night. So I'm always <laughs> picking up vinyl um off a wet floor which is you know anyone that <laughs> plays vinyl will be like Ooh, crying like my records um so many of my records were scratched and crackle because of that there was a group of people from Sheffield the Sheffield posse who were really keen on the music they knew the music house disco funk soul whatever and if i ever played a record that they didn't want to hear they gave me the time out oh that's so, harsh so i was not a dj who had been practicing their art and had suddenly got there i was learning in real time in front of crowds mm. of really like picky 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 crowd in the best club in the world and I learned really quickly how to read a room how to not play to the gallery but how to construct a set that was going to have people dancing from the get-go to the end of the night it was wild it was just a great night and I always wore practically nothing and I was ripped because I was dancing all the time as well so it's just like string vest fluffy bra fluffy knickers or metal bra metal knickers or, or just like it was manga it was it was homemade just sprayed with car spray one week it's just madness I want it we're gonna go back to the fluffy bras in a sec because I want to ask you about that how yeah. how did you learn to read a room and like how did you learn like this is how I work those sets in like can you break down some of the things that you know now that you learn I have been clubbing since I was 15 years old Mm. So I've danced on a lot of dance floors and also my family I'm the youngest of eight so all my sisters and my brother are clubbers and music collectors and our family parties were dancing music you know that that, that was always at the center of everything so I knew what made my family dance and I knew what made me dance and I knew what I wanted from a night when I 
when I was clubbing myself, having that idea of what makes a good party and what makes a rubbish party already set in my head as a punter, I then use those, you know, rules to help me kind of soundtrack a room in that way. So, you know, you've got your warm-up, you've got your early doors. These are the tunes that, you know, you're not going to go hell for leather, but you want to get people warmed up and dancing and they put the coats in, get get the first drink. You know, you can play a nine-hour set if you like, but people aren't going to stay on the dance floor for nine hours. Mm. You're going to get people that come and people that go in that time. It is a rare occasion when someone's playing a long set like that, that, everyone will stay for every minute of that situation. Mm. And you need to break up the energy as a DJ as well. You can't go, like you said, hell for leather for nine hours. You need a bit of like ebb and flow in the night too, right? Yeah, you do. You do. You need a bit of ebb and flow and you need a bit of colour. You know, you can't just play like straight out bangers for me if I'm playing a long set or even if I'm playing a short set, I like to tease people with something they don't know and then please people with something they do. And then there's a moment where I will go, right, okay, we can forget everything that you know now. Now I'm going to do this. You should have that on a (laughs) T-shirt. Please tease people with stuff they don't know, please them with stuff they do. It's such a great sum up of the balance yeah Um, and it's just finding that balance but finding that balance came from playing to people like week in week out night in night out and actually figuring out what it meant when they do this mm. or that or you know whatever you just start to read body language mm. and you started off in a double act right and uh, yes, did. You, you've written about how that went quite wrong and a you nearly lost your residency really, <laughs> a double act that wasn't really a double act it was double act in name alone because <laughs> the girl that I was DJing with never actually put a record on because she didn't have any records and she didn't have any headphones but <laughs> she had the idea of us taking over that room but you know she didn't want to play records she didn't want to be dj she just wanted to be at the party so she just partied every month when we played she partied i played the records and then whenever the people that were running the party came down to check how our room was she'd elbow me off the decks and just kind of stand there with my headphones on pretending that she was djing and then they'd go back upstairs and she'd just hand me my headphones back and she'd go back into the party and get completely spangled with the mates. And I thought that was all right, you know, because I was like, I was having a great time. You know, I wanted to DJ. She didn't want to DJ, but I wanted to do it. So that was fine. But then there was a month where they chose me to be in their fashion show. So I had to be upstairs and she didn't have my records and she didn't have any headphones and it was a disaster. People complained about that room and people complained so much about that room that we got hauled up in front of the people that 
were running the night and they asked us to explain why it had been so bad and I didn't mean to dob her in but it was just like you know I, I just said like straight away but I was in the fashion show so <laughs> then they wanted to fire us both because it was like she'd been taking half the money for no reason so it was like a trust thing and and I had to ask them, beg them to keep me on because I really wanted to do it. And they gave me three months probation and said, right, okay, we'll give you three months <laughs> and see if you can get it back. And I got it back straight away. So, and Amazing. here I am 30 years later. <laughs> I, bet I love stories of awful gigs because I think they're so relatable. Oh, I've had so many. <laughs> Have you got any more you'd like to share? Either early on or later? Early on, um, I, I don't really, I mean, there's the one in the book that I talk about when I had done my finals and I went back to DJ. Oh, and, yeah, where uh, you had a particularly lovely time. Yeah, I had a particularly lovely time um, celebrating, finishing, wrapping the TV show and finishing my final. And it was my first gig back at home. And I got too high and I had to leave the decks. But rather than leave the decks unmanned, I put <laughs> my identical twin, which I thought was genius. <laughs> it's like you stand there and and Johnny, my other friend Jay, is just like um yeah, you DJ, because he knew how to, to use the decks. And Paula could stand there and pretend she was me while I got my head together in the toilet. So this was a great plan, but it wasn't a great plan. And so while I'm in the toilet trying to get my head together, I can hear them playing. The first record they played was Dawn Penn, No, No, No. Big tune. Which I heard it the first time. First time they played it, massive cheer. Room loved it. I'm I'm in the toilets like Ugh. second time they played it oh my straight God. after there was kind of a lull and I couldn't get out of the toilet and the third time they played it I was like oh God no this isn't happening and then they were went on to another record and they I'm just hearing partial plays of tracks as they're putting something on and going no not that but this uh, it's like oh this is a disaster and my twin came into the room into the toilets and said are you coming back yet <laughs> and I just felt awful I'm like I'll be back in a minute and she said all right well I'm going back because Johnny's playing Jay's playing um Judy Cheeks <laughs> Reach and it's my turn next it's my turn to play it next so I was like oh my god you're not supposed to play the record over and over again. Oh, what well, they thought they each got to, to play the record the same. Oh, bless them. Yeah. Isn't so, it amazing, though? Because they must have stood by you, like, yeah. And it, like, <laughs> it's amazing that, like, you know, back then, I guess, you know, not everybody's mate was a DJ, but even still, it's like, surely when you're dancing, you're paying attention to the fact that you're not playing the tunes twice. But this is what tells you that it's, a, it's an actual art and a skill. And this superpower, not everyone can do it. Not everyone is that aware. And even when they are aware, they don't know practically how to 
put one record on, put another record on, and then once they've done two, is that you have to do that for two hours or three hours, however your set is. The thought process is, it's like quadratic equations and fractals going like digital 1010. So you're beat matching, you're counting in fours, eights, sixteens, thirty twos. And then above that, you've got the if not that, then this mm. quadratic equation where I'm playing this record now, this might match it, but that would twist it mm. and this will keep it steady and that will take it off to a completely other place so you've got three four different ways it could go and you're watching the crowd to see Mm. what am I going to give them because also by the end of the record you might have changed your mind at least once exactly yeah I do that all the time and and then you've got someone that's going to come up to you with a phone saying either oh we love you you're brilliant or or someone's going wanker pitch it up or or someone's saying you know can you play something we can dance to yeah exactly and people don't realize that when they do that they're blindsiding you Mm. because you're so focused in your story in the story of whatever you're creating that That random request is like being hit by a truck when you're doing 250 miles an hour down an empty motorway. It's like being blindsided. And then you've got to come back from that. So if their request has been good, great idea. That will help. But nine times out of 10, it's not. And you've got to come back from that interruption back into your zone and take it up where that interruption left you and have people not feel like there was an interruption. Let's talk about fluffy bras because you talked about like having a really androgynous look back in the 90s. And I remember you also, (laughs) do you know what? This was a bit I underlined in your book is like you talked about uh, how you were sort of known for DJing in fluffy bras. But then the dudes in like the straight clubs in the record shops were sort of like, oh, no, we're not going to take her seriously because of how you dressed. And I was like, oh, my God, like, that's me. Every gig, I'm like, what am I going to wear? And some nights I just really want to wear a T-shirt and I can get why and get why all the techno bros just wear black all the time because then they don't have to ever think about it but I do feel like as a woman you are judged a bit more on how you look but sometimes you're like actually though if you do make an effort and you do try and look it's a sort of balance between performance and letting other people have the space before like yeah. to have their performance right yeah I mean it's a difficult one as well because I've been when I was in Paris, I went really down the fashion route and Swarovski this and Paul and Joe and whatever. And there's a point, and I'm sure there'll be a point for everybody that does that, where one morning you wake up and you don't want to do it and you've already set yourself up to be this, like, glamazon or whatever that has to be turned out in a certain way and if you're not turned out in that way all of a sudden you stop becoming that person so it can sometimes you know even for you as the DJ that wants to look good it can sometimes be a rod to beat your own back with 
going too far down that mm. look image route. And then even when it's not you that kind of doesn't like it, you can get judged really harshly mm. for looking good, you know, whether it's jealousy, envy, or people just kind of do that with women anyway, that it's just like, oh, she looks better than she plays. And I hear that loads of times about DJs. And it's like, you would never say that about a guy. Totally. People would never say that about a guy. And like, that's all they're there for. Yeah. It's just criminal the way that, it's used as a criticism that you want to look good. Mm. I think that there's room for everybody to look however they want to look. You know, I don't know how this job is so gendered, how how for a woman to do it, it's this judgment, that judgment, that judgment. And for a guy to do it, none of those judgments exist. Yeah, it's not. And yet. Yeah, we do exactly the same job. We lift the same vinyl. We lift the same weight in vinyl. We lift the same weight in USB. We scroll the same buttons. We slide the same faders. There is no science to it that makes it any more different for Nicole Mudaba to do it than Ferry Corsten or Giles Peterson to do it than Colleen. You know, like we're using the same equipment. Mm. Yeah, we're using exactly the same equipment. So the look of it should have flapple to do with it. Talking about women behind the decks and like the sort of the way that they are seen, but also what they bring, because we're DJing with the same equipment. You talk really nicely about how in the Hacienda, like the female energy that you brought was a real big part of like what made that night as a queer night so special. And I know you've played like, meat rack recently at Glastonbury as part yeah. of block nine and I'm wondering like I think queer people generally bring an amazing energy but I'm wondering like within queer spaces themselves in your experience how have they changed since you first started DJing yeah well lots when I started like I say the special thing about flesh was that that it created first of all a safe space for gays to go to um, you know, in the 90s, we were coming off the back of um, Section 28 and and Manchester specifically had a very homophobic chief of police, James Anderson. And the times, mid-90s, we come off the back of the AIDS crisis as well, the government advertising for that, it was like a gay disease and everything. So... Flesh in itself was an antidote to all of that and created a a clubbing environment that was decadent. It was hedonistic. We were out. We were proud. We were having a great time and we're having a great time amongst everybody. This wasn't about hiding away anymore. That is what I think gay clubbing has brought to straight clubbing. It's like, it's an attitude mm. and a way of being okay with everyone, mm. open and accepting. I mean, it, it, I I just do try and contextualise it and say, you know, we can walk around 
holding hands with whoever and kissing whoever in the street now. We couldn't in 1991. So that was kind of the attitude in terms of clubbing that we brought there is that everybody all together, this is all okay. It's safe. It's proper. Yeah. And musically, it's like we just brought the best music. Yeah. <laughs> part of the podcast so we've done part one we're going to do part two in a sec the middle bit is called crossfade and it's where we're trying to bring the two disparate sides of like dj discourse together so this is a quick fire round give us a short answer um okay but you know if there are things you feel like you want to elaborate on please do uh okay so sync or no sync no sync never always switch it off um pioneer or allen and heath pioneer always yes i'm sorry i know you'll hate that but no i won't i'm with you alan and heath just doesn't do anything (laughs) i can't play around with it pioneer is fantastic and that you know whatever pioneer (laughs) day job or dj full-time dj full-time should producers dj and should djs produce i don't think we have to I don't think we have to, and I really wish. I mean, that is a marketing thing that really came out of the 2010s, and I wish it hadn't. It's a way of making it exclusive. It's a way of taking the democracy away from DJing, and it's a way of blocking talent because some producers aren't really great DJs, Mm. and some DJs are rubbish producers i don't think i have ever made a piece of music so far that will stand the test of time like some of the music that i love so no long answer but no i like that 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 one particularly gets me on a big rant but i like that because you also like so obviously love what you do as a dj your career has been varied but like djing's the core of it and it the way you talk about it, you're like, it is a skill. And there are people who don't realize like it. And it's hard, like you talked about it standing the test of time and DJing, like it does stand the test of time, but it's also this thing that disappears, you know, yeah. like you can't recapture the moment. It's yeah. living in the present, isn't it? Should DJs publish their track listing? I will tell people of a track I'm playing, but, and I always do publish my playlist. I can understand why DJs don't. I can really understand why DJs don't because there's nothing more annoying when you go to a gig when the person that's playing before you has picked up all your playlists. Mm. And particularly if you do not produce your own music and you're playing, you know, people can buy the stuff that is on your playlist unless it's rare as hen's teeth vinyl that's made in japan in one year in the 70s everyone because of the democracy of music now um everyone can pick up everyone's music so that is why maybe djs shouldn't okay 
Is there a limit to the number of edits that a DJ can acceptably play in a set? No. Great. What's your panic tune if you've accidentally cleared the dance floor? Depends. Are we talking house, disco, funk, soul, hip hop? You tell me. <laughs> what's your like fail safe that springs to um, mind? I mean, obviously there's Sylvester, you know, if if everything goes tits up, you make me feel mighty real. Will always bring you know you know will always get the party back. It will any in fact anything by Sylvester, gay straight night anything by Sylvester will always work. Um, maybe the soul wax mix, you know, maybe an edit by somebody. I think I've got an various edits yeah you must have a lot so i would say yeah you make me feel mighty real because i've got various versions of that track perfect that working every night um and uh you know for for the harder stuff i i would say if i'm going hell for leather like harder techno i would pick up something by the eli brown he's really good or um, on the chunkier, housier tip, camel fat, their new track, Compute, that will always save the day. What is your favourite effects? <laughs> I use them all. Um, it depends on the record and what I want it to do, but um, echo and delay, ping pong, flipping <laughs> spiral, bring it all on reverb. <laughs> That's why I like Pioneer because yeah. I just like to play around with it. But not on every record, you know, because most records have got, you know, most records have got effects on, on them anyway. And I think you should mainly let the record play. So I don't use it a lot, but when I use it, I go batch it. <laughs> And which is better, home gig or away? That depends where, because it could be Glastonbury, so away, but it could be home where, whereas Project or Castlefield or Parklife or or Hidden, even it could home or away. I'll always have someone from home. That's there. amazing. I know I'll always have someone from home there now. So it's love sick. that. Um, that brings us nicely to part two, which is away gigs. Do you remember the first time you played abroad? Yeah, I do. It's funny. It went so wrong. <laughs> Tell us how. Because <laughs> I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing. Like, nobody... It was probably, was it 1995? Yeah, 1995 when I first played abroad and I had a gig at Industria in Oporto and I was playing for Paolo Def and Alice and I was so excited to go. But, you know, you have to bear in mind that I'm from Manchester, the club's mainly finished at two o'clock but flesh finished at four in the morning and so I'm used to clubs work in a certain way nobody give me an itinerary to say you're playing at this time and this is how it works and I just expected it to be like 
England. And then when I got in the club, I was like, oh, my God. I'd never seen anything like it before anyway, first of all. Why? What was it like? And it was beautiful. It was the industry in Oporto. At that time, it was just one of the most beautiful clubs I've ever played in. And the staff were beautiful and, and the people were really nice. It's Portugal anyway. And and they treated me really nice. And, and they had these techniques that were limited edition gold. So they were just like, this really special sound system and they had these two massive co2 cannons in there that i'd never seen co2 cannons anywhere before you know like all i'd seen before is sweat dripping off the (laughs) ceilings you know and then this so i'm playing and every now and again it'd just be like And this CO2 would come down and everybody would be cheering on the dance floor and it'd leave a residue on the vinyl. So it was just like (laughs) blowing this white stuff off the vinyl. (laughs) It was amazing. And I was so bereft at the end of the party. I'm like, I am so sorry. I really didn't understand. It's like, you know, part of it was like I was hungry. I hadn't eaten. Hadn't had anything to drink. I'd be shut in this hotel room and no one, like, I couldn't speak to anyone. Didn't and, have the internet oh either or your phone no, to be like. in 1995, I didn't have a phone. Like, I didn't even have a cell phone. It was just the most bonkers thing. And looking back on it, you know, wow. <laughs> um. One of the things I wanted to touch on in your book is like you're so skilled and you know so much and you're able also to talk about like the sort of breakdown of technical stuff that's involved and the people skills of DJing in a way that's like just really refreshing. I feel like the book is it's a it's like a manual of how to DJ for soft skills to do that business as well. Mm. But like there's also a real streak of like absolutely justified anger of like how hard it's been for you as a woman and as a black woman in particular, you know, you're owning a really powerful emotion, which is like, it's not been fair for you. And it's not Mm. fair for loads of women. And, Mm. you know, there's so many things in there. You you talk about like the one in one out mentality for for black women in particular. It's still operational today. It's not gone away. It's, and it's one of the complaints I hear from all of my, you know, all of my DJ sisters, peers, is this one in, one out thing has to go. Mm. You know, there are more DJs in every single genre. There are more of us in every single genre, but there are only certain names. And I'm very, I'm lucky and privileged to a degree because I'm, I'm working for sure. I'm working, you know, smallest violin in the world. Oh, she's moaning. There's more of us. But there really are more of us. There's more people behind me and they're not getting through. Mm. There's more people at my level that aren't getting through. How do you navigate with that? Because it it's also like something that you either, you, you are really like passionate about like speaking out about it and fighting against that. But I think some people might just pack yeah. it in because it's too it, bloody hard. Well, they do. Well, they do. And this is why I'm making a noise about it because, you know, they like 
there's a reason why there are more men than women doing it. The guys get the breaks. The women don't get the breaks. You have to be really bloody-minded to keep it going when you're not at the super, super top and getting all the work. The lower down the ladder you go, the harder it gets to stay in. Mm. It's really easy to get kind of shoved aside, passed over, um, always get the warm-up opening gig, always get the rubbish money. And if your money doesn't go up, then you're going to bounce out because, you know, you asked me the question, proper job or Mm. DJ full-time? Everybody, absolutely everybody would love to DJ full time, but until they get give us the same money, mm. we can't. The only way that could change is by people who have a platform either making a noise about it or putting caveats in their contract that is saying, I'm not playing unless it's equal, unless I see gay, straight, women, black, white balance on this lineup. Mm. You know, that's the only way that can change. Yeah, one of the things I think is like, I think is really powerful the way you've written about like the point where your career, you know, because of forces beyond your control kind of lulls. And it was, mm. it was so powerful because it wasn't just about like the sort of um, the flame, like maybe sputtering a bit for you musically, but it's also about like life stuff. You write about having a five-year plan And then you end up becoming a carer, which I feel like is such a, you know, it's such a holistic view of what it's like to be a a female DJ because women do the bulk of the caring in this country and all around the world. And it is really, it was really like interesting reading, you know, life kind of getting in the way for you. And that's why I said, I think your book could be like a manual because there's, there's also like so much resilience in there that people can learn from. Yeah. Yeah. And it, It's also the, I suppose part of the anger is accepting that I have to be resilient about it and not actually saying, do you know what, actually, I don't want to be resilient about this. I want to be angry about it. And then I want to be sad about it. And I want to show that those emotions also exist in this because I'm actually a human being I'm not just a DJ I've got life shit happening at the same time and that's like everybody we've got life stuff going on everybody has got life stuff going on and how do you deal with that in front of a crowd you know Michael Beebe's just had cancer you know he got his remission notice this week how do you deal with that in front of people Emily Lenz has just had a baby how do you deal with your pregnancy in front of thousands of people that's a super relevant question to me because I'm five months pregnant now with a toddler at home yeah and Uh, Helena Starr has just had her baby you know how do you deal with that part of your real life Mm. and then DJ at the same time the fears the worries the financial implications of that you know, somebody has to talk about these things. I felt so seen in your book because I you talked about pregnancy and DJing and I was like, that's me right now. And, you know, the first pregnancy was during lockdown. So nobody saw mm. and there weren't any mm. gigs. This one, it's like, I did all the festivals this summer pregnant, 
like yeah. and it was also like I don't really want to be staying up till 2am sober to yeah. do this set but I'm going to do it and you know it's it's kind of like yeah it's like there's you don't want to tell everyone too much but it's also like there's reasons why life gets in the way and your career stops you know absolutely that how have you kind of handled those moments in your own life where you like how have you kind of managed to turn those around in your head and been like right this is still all cool we're going ahead even though it's hard because the frustration and the reality of it is massive you know you know this job is not a job to me it's like my entire working life it's a it's the job I've stuck at the longest you know I have had other jobs at the same time so but DJing and music has been the continuum through everything and for me when I was looking after my mum those two years were just like really really hard because I could DJ but I could only DJ for very short bursts because I had to I couldn't leave her alone in the house for long periods of time so I was playing sets like five till eight or five till nine in the evening so I could get home and make sure she had a medication and she was in bed and so I'd make a dinner and then I'd go out DJ come back give her a medication, get her in bed. And and it was just the most emotionally exhausting time. I don't think I've ever been that tired. And, um, and the frustration of not being able to play in proper nightclubs, because I'm a club DJ, I'm not a bar DJ, but far, fortunately for me, in coming back to Manchester, there is a really healthy bar circuit. I could work all year round and I was still exercising those muscles. Real life bleeds in every now and again. (laughs) And when it does, you better be ready to adjust your vision and adjust your, you know, adjust your plans I think for anyone that is caring somebody or that has a sickness and illness and you you have to navigate that, you have to make space for that. But what I would say to anybody is that is the most important thing and everything else will follow. It's just the hardest compromise you have to make you'll make the right decision but it's hard it's really really hard Mm. it's inspiring as well because I think so much of DJing is like right now and your Mm. story is inspiring because it crosses many years like you're in it for the long Mm. haul Mm. and it's like the lulls aren't permanent because I think it's so easy to think I've had my bit of fun and now it's time to like grow up yeah and that's that's ageism which is definitely sexism wrapped up as something else but it's Mm. also like you know if you want to that's it I think you're you're a career DJ someone who's made their livelihood for your whole working life and that's like you know 
that's really different. Like your 30 years of experience comes through when you tell your story in a way that like if you just get to sort of five years, 10 years, like 30 years is something that most of us can't imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think I would have ever imagined it when I started DJing. (laughs) I would never have thought that this would be the job that I should have got gold watch for 10 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) I would never have thought that this would be the one. But that is one of the central messages for the book is that there's no time limit. Mm. And I am really pushing for people to continue doing what they do if they are good at it. Mm. If you're an artist, actress, musician, you name it, this timer that women have on them, take it off. Yeah. it's, it's... Take it off, throw it in the bin <laughs> and do it for as long as you need to do it. You decide when you stop. Yeah, I love that. And I think it's like something that women who maybe are listening now aren't even going to need it now but they'll need it in five years or 10 years or 15 years and it's yeah I mean I've had people who who are under 30 saying this is shit you know uh, you know there's no such thing as ageism you know we're having no problem getting work I'm like you're 30 I thought the same it's hard though you don't want to be like you don't (laughs) want to be like the harbinger of doom but yeah but I'm not being the harbinger of doom I'm just saying this is a reality check yeah just prepare yourself because if you prepare yourself then it won't come as such a shock when it comes it doesn't matter what level you are at it doesn't matter what stage of artistry you are at it will come this is what you call a systemic mm. problem. Mm. You've talked about, just then you talked about um, the sort of like backlash, I guess is too strong a word, but the sort of, um, I guess, the disconnect between your experience and maybe younger female DJs who's saying, yeah, you know, yeah, that your experience... is a good word. Okay. So you've talked about that, but I also think one of the really nice things is that you're really open to kind of intergenerational sharing and that it's like a real, and also that just also your attitude is, um, you know, to to sort of do things yourself instead of waiting for other people, but to also demand more from other people. So it's like a complex position of like responsibility for everyone. I'm just wondering like what differences you've seen in having that attitude like what's the impact for you been on your career and your life I think one of the most inspiring things I've seen in the last three years you know coming through the pandemic out the other side of it I mean we're still not entirely through because people are still getting a version or variant of COVID we it's not over yet but in the last three years the way that people have been open and encouraging and supportive has been incredible you know I spoke earlier before we went on mic about the first time I met Erica McCoy and I think it totally blew my mind that somebody who I'd never really met properly 
could hear something in me that they were ready to encourage and also were ready to talk about me in those terms to other people. So that for me, and and also coming from a younger camp, a totally different musical genre, totally different musical journey, path, call it what you will. But that for me was just mind-blowing. It was like I found somewhere, someone I can learn from and not only learn from in technical terms, but just in emotional, spiritual terms. I have found, I found a new breed of women and a new breed of female DJs that I was just like, wow, this is just what an evolution And that gave me so much hope because it meant that all the battles (laughs) that I've had to, you know, all the little hurdles that I've had to jump over, all the little battles I've had to fight, it meant that you could be like this and it is an amazing thing. It is a supported thing and that people will encourage you to do the same. And that is magnificent. And I encourage people every day to be like this because when we are strong together, we are unbeatable, unbeatable. And that is just the biggest learning and I have loved it and I have taken it and I have run with it and I've tried to live exactly in that same way to be supportive of as many people as I can coming up people who don't have a voice who can't speak for themselves who can't like who haven't got the support who haven't got the agent the the ears of the bosses at the radio who have I've got the contacts that they haven't got so I can share them or I can put in a call and it has made such a difference to my mindset meeting people like Erica and Jaguar and Jams and and also because they are black women in this industry and I have to say and this is the this is a truth that really does stick in my heart. I've never been around as many powerful black women as I have been now, as I am now. Mm. And it's amazing and magnificent. And it also makes me a bit sad Mm. because up until now, I've always felt pretty much isolated and the only person in the room. Mm. And now I can look at it and I'll just go, smash it the lot of you and I encourage everyone I speak to Sherelle and I speak to Syreta and I'm just like I am so proud of you all go smash it smash it smash it smash it keep smashing it and I will be cheering from the sidelines because I love watching these girls blossom I just love it and 
I'm almost crying. It's just like, yeah, I can feel it because it, it just makes it all worthwhile. You know, it's just like, wow, yeah, okay. I feel it yeah. as well. Like we're we're recording this remotely, but I've got like the hair standing up on my arms as you're saying that because it's so beautiful, and I feel not only what you're saying, like you're, I can hear your kind of um, admiration for them, but I can also feel the sadness that you didn't have that yourself, and it's just God, such I a, absolutely love them. It's just watching them, such a lovely thing, and they're you... all so different, and I am just gassed watching them all do well. And and on their own terms and taking no shit and saying no when it's no and saying yes when it's yes and getting the respect that they deserve. I love Thank that. Thank you, sweet baby Jesus. It's such a generous attitude. Like it's so, like it's, it's such a beautiful thing to hear. You, you're obviously like so proud of them and you you talk in the book about like pride being something that's like, difficult to own as a black woman or like yeah. people don't want you to people don't want they you don't to want see you to be. be proud <laughs> so how so how do you celebrate your wins because uh, I'm looking at your I'm looking at your background while we're doing this call on video and I can see loads. so yeah, many beautiful one, posters of stuff <laughs> I hadn't noticed that all I can read because it's a bit blurry is Frankie Knuckles how do you celebrate your wins uh I celebrate them now by putting them on the wall. They never used to be on the wall. They used to be shoved in the garage. I celebrate them by making them visible. I celebrate them by talking about it. You know, this is this is the the key thing about the book. Like people didn't know I existed because I wasn't in the history books, but I knew I existed because I had the flyers. I had the proof I've got the gold records on the wall and nobody knew. <laughs> yeah. How does nobody know? So It's the canonization um, of the story, isn't it? Like people get yeah. whittled out every time it's told so the kind of key people that the person telling the story remembers yeah. and it's just shouldn't be like that or we need to allow space for more stories to flourish. I'll tell you how else I celebrate my wins by just enjoying it. <laughs> Good. <laughs> but I just enjoying it and there are times you know and I say it every single gig I play nailed it great <laughs> nailed it and when you look back like and I don't think your DJ career is anywhere near over when you look back like what are the gigs that stand out to you as like those were like life affirming and life changing gigs I think the first time I played at Hacienda and I don't even really remember what I played um, but I knew when I finished that I wanted to do it again. You are hooked from the off. <laughs> and that, that was just like, well, that I'm in now. <laughs> so <laughs> I've done it and I'm in now. So I didn't know how long it was going to last, but I knew that it was, I was supposed to be a teacher. I was supposed to be a professor. Then... 2005 when I just moved to Paris I didn't know when they said oh come and play with play for us that it was going to be open air moving trucks like carnival but I mean there were 30,000 people in the streets of Paris and it we were playing this party I had a police escort to get to the site 
they drove me in and out of traffic along the oh it's just the craziest thing I'd, <laughs> I'd been in Paris four months we were just before the Hotel de Ville and I couldn't even see the street for people I was like shit this is serious and I took over from Etienne de Crazy so it's like oh my god I've got his records in my box and I'm DJing with this guy and Bob Sinclair was on after me and I was like what <laughs> what like why am I even why am I even on this van and then I played my music and they went nuts and it it was a life-changing experience because then my next eight years in Paris stayed like that I played to headline crowds 30,000 people Marche de Fierté uh, Fête de la Musique every key club all around France I toured it non-stop for nine years amazing and that Solid Days party in 2005 and then there was one that I played for Mixed Move in 2007 just after my dad died and those two parties really set me at the top of the ladder I never played with anyone lower than David Guetta when I was David Guetta and Bob Sinclair when I was in France wow that's that's the level I was at and nobody knows about those years because I was in France so I've played in places that don't exist Hacienda Cocoon I played at the end you know all these mythical clubs that now don't exist anymore I had the honor and privilege of gracing the decks at quite a lot of those clubs Mm. so yeah I've been very lucky and people don't even know that I've done it (laughs) well let's hope they do after this class yeah let's hope that they start to know because you deserve you more than deserve your place in the history books Paulette thank you so much it's been absolutely amazing talking to you and like thank you for your wisdom and generosity and your stories over the years you nearly made me cry you nearly made me cry oh my god i could have talked to paulette for hours she is an absolute font of knowledge and experience not just on the hardcore skills like reading the room but also on the soft skills like resilience and learning to battle through the peaks and troughs of a 30-year career and it's just so brilliant to hear her experiences i hope you liked this podcast episode i really loved recording it for you if you did please tell someone else about it you can subscribe to the whole podcast and you can leave us a review you can also follow us on socials at dances for buildings this episode was produced by erica mccoy and the music is by julia tess it was presented by me and Lisa. <laughs>